Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Ben and I'm joined today by Anya. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and outside the field of public health. Today we are joined by Carol Johnson, the follow-up coordinator for the University of Iowa screening program. She also serves on a variety of local, state, and national newborn screening committees. She's here today to talk with us about the program and its public health importance. So let's get started. Can you tell us about how you got started working with the Iowa Newborn Screening Program? Hi, Ben. Sure. I initially, and I called it, began to play a newborn screening in 2005 when the Iowa Newborn Screening Program hired their first medical director of newborn screening. And she needed an administrator. And I was the administrator in the Division of Medical Genetics and Genomics and Pediatrics. And so I took on that role as an administrator. Through that, she thankfully, because it helped me learn so much, took me to national meetings and taught me a lot about newborn screening. And then in 2011, the existing coordinator resigned from that position, and then I stepped into that role. So I've been the coordinator since 2011, but yet, as I say, playing a newborn screening since 2005. Yeah, so it sounds like you had like a helpful mentor almost. Um, Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so moving on, for those who are not familiar with it, um, what is newborn screening? That's a, a great, great question, Anya. Newborn screening, at least blood spot newborn screening, which is the, the program that I coordinate, looks for babies that are at risk by doing screening on a blood spot which is collected at about 24 hours of life from all babies that are born in Iowa. By identifying babies at risk, then that gives the program as well as that baby's care provider a chance to intervene on behalf of that baby to prevent untoward outcomes such as permanent disability or death. So it's it's great because I get to say I help save babies' lives, right? I have the best job ever. So you kind of just answered why it's important there. So we'll kind of go a little deeper than that. So like, how do you, how do you think it's like changed? Like how Im- the impact it's made, would you say? Like the importance of the program and like the developments we've seen over time? Sure. That's a, that's a interesting question too, Ben. Um, what comes to mind right away is we began screening for cystic fibrosis in the United States about you know, 2006 or so. And at the time we started screening for cystic fibrosis, it was thought that the most important thing was to prevent that first pseudomonas infection in the lungs for those babies or those children that had CF. And through newborn screening, that thought has kind of changed. And while that's still an important clinical thing that you know you want to prevent infection, now we know the most important thing is to get that baby on enzyme replacements as soon as possible so that they have proper nutrition, have the ability to grow, to be stronger. And the pulmonologists that treat cystic fibrosis will tell you that newborn screening's actually been a game changer. So it sounds like like scientific developments are kind of informing the Absol- developments in newborn screening. Absolutely. Um, 
sometimes it, I think it goes both ways, but yes. Oh. And I think one of the biggest challenges we're, we're going to have in newborn screening is how quickly gene therapy is being developed now. And so that's great. You know, we're happy that that's happening for, for patients. I think the challenge for newborn screening is going to be is once there is treatment for a condition, people are going to want that condition added to the newborn screen. Mm. And there's only so much capacity and, you know, bandwidth, you know, as they say. Um, So we're going to have to figure that out. And, And with that, if that is what people want, you know, the, the public wants, then um, you guys know you're, you're in public health, then the funding is going to have to increase right along with that, right? And that's always a challenge in public health. So moving on to kind of getting a, a lay of the land, so to speak, you you came and spoke to one of my classes um, last semester and talked about kind of how newborn screening differs in different places. So can you talk about what it looks like here in Iowa compared to other places in the U.S.? Sure. So what Anya is referring to is when I do presentations about newborn screening, I want to make sure that everybody understands that While there is federal oversight for newborn screening, each state really has autonomy and they get to decide what they do or or what they don't do. Differences are present based on what is screened for, how they screen, how they're funded, all kinds of things like that. But I think one good, good positive thing or good thing is that Iowa is one of the most or is the most timely state for newborn screening in the country. So that's how we differ in a very positive way. Um, And that's because we work 365 days a year, and that includes our courier, the lab staff, and follow-up. It's also because we are the only program in the country that has two shifts in their newborn screening program. And that is because some of the conditions that we screen for are life-threatening, which, you know, I think you, you understood from, you know, preventing untoward outcomes. And some of those conditions, minutes, hours, and days really can make the difference of life and death. So that's why we believe so strongly in timeliness in Iowa uh, and have really put time and resources in, in managing that. A little, something that's a little different in Iowa is that I've alluded to that there's federal oversight and there's this national recommendation of a uniform screening panel. And right now there are 33 disorders on that panel and Iowa is screening for 30 out of 33 of those disorders. However, that is going to change. I can't give you a exact timeline yet, but we will be screening for those other three conditions in Iowa in 12 to 24 months. And that's due to some legislation that was passed uh, recently, where we have to be screening for everything that is on that recommended panel. And in addition to that, as we talk about growth, and we've talked about how gene therapy might influence, you know, new conditions being added, Um, It says that we have to review any new disorders 
that are added to that recommended panel within 12 months. Doesn't say we have to screen within 12 months, but we have to do evidence-based review of those conditions. So you're kind of mentioning it with like funding plays a part, federal regulation plays a part, yes, state regulation yes. plays a part. So how exactly do you decide what to screen for then? Because clearly 33 disorders is a lot, but there's also a lot more that you could potentially. Right. So right. how do we go about deciding what we're screening for? And, and the other thing is too, Ben, is that it also depends how you count the disorders. So some people will say 33, some will say over 50 because the metabolic screening it's, you know, there's like 20, 30 disorders just under the metabolic screen. So that also is confusing to people too, right? Well, how, you know, when you're looking state to state, well, this says they screen 30, but this one says they screen 60. And it looks like there's pretty big disparity. And, and it's really just about how people are counting. <laughs> so, um, so how do we decide? So we have a process in place. However, this bill is going to change that process. So we are in uh, discussions right now of what that's really gonna look like, both the before and after the bill. Um, I think there's some basics that are going to, to be very similar in that it will be an evidence-based review. There will be a core work group that consists of people from the laboratory, people from follow-up, um, our medical director, you know, people like that. And then I think there'll be an additional ad hoc group that are this, what I'm gonna call the subject matter experts. So if you're looking to, and I'm, I'm gonna make up a disorder, let's just say disorder X, and you know, you need to learn and understand more about disorder X. So we're going to bring in content experts to serve as, as ad hoc members. And, you know, we have great medical care here in Iowa, really for a state our size, it's, it's pretty fantastic. The, the, the care that we have available to us here. However, the more disorders that you add, and these disorders are often rare, right? We may have to go out of state to find that content expert as well. So this is, again, how I think the landscape might be changing. Yeah, it sounds like there would be just a lot to weigh <laughs> in terms of deciding whether there, there is. And the other thing that I think people don't quite understand is, you know, when you go see your doctor, your doctor is caring for you, you know, the one. Uh, and in public health, we really have to think about how our decisions are going to affect our entire population. And sometimes those two, that clinical view and the public health view kind of butt heads sometimes. And um, so that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with as well. And, and we have to navigate through and education is part of that as well. So I guess kind of moving into a clinical view per se, let's say I'm a new parent and I just noticed that my newborn tested positive on one of the screening tests. What uh, happens next? So in Iowa, by, by law, 
we work through that baby's PCP. So if we'll just say baby Johnson had an abnormal screen, then the lab has done their testing, they've notified follow-up, and now the follow-up staff are going to look at the demographic information for that baby. And um, we're either going to call the hospital if that baby is still an inpatient, or we're gonna be calling that baby's primary care provider. And that information has been supplied to the birthing center or the midwife from the parents. So then we call Dr. Smith, let's say, and we say, Dr. Smith, you know, this baby is presumptive positive for cystic fibrosis. This is what we recommend happens next. This is how you do it. And then that PCP or that their designated person will call the parents and inform them of the result. I also wanted, wanted to mention here, it's a national issue that we know that that communication between the PCP and the parent isn't always the best. It's, it's maybe very vague. It's, it is a screening test. And so, you know, the, the PCPs doesn't want to alarm the parents, but yet we still want them to do something usually. So it's, it's a balancing act, right? So because we know, and, and of course we hear stories that filter back to the program from parents about how this goes or sometimes doesn't go. So we have instituted a family contact call and so what happens is that we verify that the provider has talked to the parent. You know, if they have, great. If not, we ask them to please make sure that they do that. And then we do this family contact call. That's about roughly the next business day, we'll say, after that uh, provider has talked to the family. And it's a genetic counselor who calls. And so the genetic counselor will talk about, first of all, tell me, tell me what you understood. So it isn't necessarily about what they were told. It's really about what they understood, right? And those can be very different things sometimes. And it's also very scary for the parent. So chances are, you know, they didn't absorb a whole lot after somebody said something might be wrong, you know? That's human nature. So we, we understand that. So the counselor says, tell me what you understood, talks about what the next steps are going to be with this family. And sometimes that might be getting just a, a repeat screen. Sometimes that's going in and getting some blood drawn. Sometimes it's coming in to see a specialist or to go into a CF center, cystic fibrosis center, and having a sweat test done. So they just go over that. And then if we know the names of the staff at the location where they're going in to see the specialist, we give them names and we kind of go through, you know, what's going to happen at that first visit too. We, we want to reduce parental anxiety. We want to increase their knowledge and I will say here too, when we talk to the provider, we then follow that up with a fax 
that includes our written recommendations. It also includes a one-page educational sheet for the provider and another educational sheet for the parent. And because this disclosure is, I would say, 98% of the time done over the phone, the, we found, also found the parents were really not ever getting that educational sheet. And so the genetic counselor goes over that and then offers to send that to the family. And they, they always want that. I mean, the parents want to know. And, you know, within that 24 hours, they've Googled it usually, right? Um, yeah. And so sometimes that increases anxiety, right? So sometimes it's, it's um, giving the parent more realistic expectations of what this may or may not be. So obviously it's like a very complicated process, you know, once something does come up or et cetera, et cetera, but how it's gotta be difficult. I'm sure it's much easier with the new electronic medical records uh, coming out in the past 10, 20 years, but how are you keeping track of all these providers and all these patients? Like it's gotta be a daunting task, right? It, it, it is a bit, it is a bit daunting. Um, so we have a newborn screening database that both the state hygienic lab who does the screening and the follow-up staff use. So we can communicate back and forth with each other. All the documentation about the testing is in there. All the documentation about the follow-up is in there, the genetic counseling, everything. So it's in some respects a one-stop shop. And within that database is a contact list that probably changes every single day. I think, you know, we, we edit it, we add to it, we, you know, delete a provider out if we've heard that they've left the state, you know, things like that. So that's how we keep track. There's always room for improvement. We're working actually on a new, they call it a laboratory information system that is going to be even more robust and addresses some of the, we'll just call it growth in the program too. So, but that's how we do it. And it works, it works well. Thank goodness it's not pencil and paper anymore, right? Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. It used to be. I mean, it really did, right? Um, so yes, thank goodness for technology here. Wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. And sticky notes. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish now you know, way back before I was even involved, I wish we would have taken more photos to kind of document what life was like back then, because it, it's, it's amazing that things went as well as they did. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your work also seems to involve things like talking to my class and (laughs) educating people about newborn screening. So why do you think this work is also important to do? You've talked a little bit about it, but can you expand on it a little bit? I am very passionate about newborn screening, but I'm, I'm equally as passionate about educating about newborn screening. I think one of the saddest things that happens is when the first time that a parent hears about newborn screening is when somebody's calling them and saying something might be wrong. I think that's kind of an injustice in in some respects. It isn't that newborn screening doesn't want to educate. We try. It is actually in Iowa law that education is supposed to occur before the screen is collected. But let's think about when the screen's collected, 24 hours after birth. How many parents 
are truly, I mean, they're on this emotional high, hopefully, you know, if everything's going well, or if things aren't going well, it's, they're also emotional, right? If they've had a C-section, you know, the mom may be on pain medication. I mean, it's not a great time to try to teach anybody anything. Yeah. And I'm sure they're getting inundated with a lot of Exactly. And, you know, that hospital stay when you have a baby is not very long. And you're right. You know, they're worried about how am I going to feed my baby? How do I bathe my baby? And I think newborn screening kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. And we also know as much as hospitals want and try to do the real, the, the right thing, that that newborn screening brochure just kind of gets thrown into that go home bag, even if it's handed to the parent and, you know, and they're told to read it. I think it just gets put in that go home bag, never to be seen again. Right. Which leads me to what our mantra is. And we're really working on that is that we really want there to be three different times that patients or or parents, I should say, are educated about newborn screening. We want to do it first in the prenatal period when they have a chance to really, I mean, that's when they're in that information seeking mode. They're not, you know, 24 hours post-delivery, right? So we want to really work with prenatal providers to talk about newborn screening then, the first time. Then, you know, it's reiterated at the time that the screening is collected. That would be the second time. And then the third time is we would really love it if the PCPs would talk about newborn screening with their parents, even if the screen is normal. That's still important information, right? And if that's that parent's first baby, then they know something about newborn screening if they have another baby, right? So sometimes newborn screening has this aura of mystery, and that's unfortunate, Um, especially so if they do the screening like in the nursery and not in front of the parents. So yeah, they're like, what's newborn screening? Um, I I didn't enroll my baby in that program. What what program are you talking about? So we, we do really want to have a three-touch educational system. We're working on it. It's tough going. Prenatal providers have an opinion that the mother is their patient, not the baby. So then therefore, why is that their job? Pediatricians or family medicine providers um, know it's their job to deal with abnormal newborn screening but they don't always understand the importance of talking about it, even if it's normal, right? So that's a problem. And before I forget, I should mention too that I represent blood spot newborn screening, but there are two other newborn screening programs in Iowa. One is a hearing screening program, and the other one is critical congenital heart disease or CCHD screening. And both of those tests are always well, I shouldn't say always, most of the time are done at the bedside. So the parents see those. So when a parent says, oh, I know, oh, oh, yeah, I know about newborn screening. It's often that what they really mean is, oh, I know about 
hearing screening or CCHD screening because it was done in front of them. And they remember that, you know, at the hearing screening, the babies get these cute little headphones put on their ears, you know, that's memorable to a parent, right? Where the blood spot is not as memorable, or if it is, it's because, you know, you stuck their baby's heel and it made the baby cry, right? So, yeah, I just wanted to mention the other two two programs before mm. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like the, the educating in general just requires, like a lot of things in public health, requires a lot of collaboration to really make it happen. It's, it's a lot of collaboration and and with so much turnover, especially now that we're seeing in, in everywhere, not only in healthcare, but everywhere. It's not enough to talk to a hospital once. You got to keep going back because their staff has changed, right? And we have all, about 80 birthing facilities in Iowa. So just the left of that, and that's not counting midwives in Iowa. So just the left of that is pretty significant. And again, it goes back to, to resources, funding, staffing, things like that. So we usually like to end on a little bit lighter heart question here. And sure. You kind, of, sure. You, kind of, you kind of mentioned earlier that you wish you would have taken more pictures back in the day, but yes, like yes. one thing you thought maybe you knew or you did, and you know, now you look back and you're like, mm, maybe it was a little different. Maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe, you know, I don't know, just something that you want to reflect on. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, oh, there's, there's so many things I could talk about then. And I wished I could be a little bit more lighthearted and, and maybe this is, but I think I, and, and this is true with education in general, and this is true with human beings. We like to consume information when it's pertinent to us, right? And so that also makes education of newborn screening a hard left. But along with that is, you know, I work within the public health arena. I've seen all the data about health literacy, you know, the percent percentage of individuals in the U.S. that are health literate. And I knew the numbers were, were not great. You know, last I saw was about 20% or so. And I don't know if you guys have a, you know, would agree or disagree with that number, but yeah, not, yeah. Not and, sure. <laughs> and, it, and it probably changes based on the subject matter too, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. So, so we're up against that. And then if you talk about genetic literacy, so all but one of the disorders that we screen for is genetic in origin, meaning it was inherited in, you know, in some form. And genetic literacy is even lower than general health literacy and genetic literacy, even in healthcare professionals is pretty low because genetics as medicine goes is a fairly new field and it wasn't taught in med school, you know, until maybe the last 20 years or so wasn't taught in public health, you know, until maybe the last 10 or 20 years or so. Right. And so there's a lot of healthcare providers out there who have no base of knowledge, so to speak, of genetic disorders. And I think that's what is impacting some of our educational efforts. I think that's what impacts when the primary care provider is trying to talk to the parent. You know, some of these conditions are so rare, we may never have a baby born in Iowa with some of these conditions. I mean, that's, I mean, eventually we will, because numbers are numbers. But I mean, we're talking you know, 
incident rate of one in a million, right? And our birth rate is about 38 to 40,000. So, you know, probably not during my work lifetime. And, and to go along with that literacy issue, then you have people who don't understand the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test. So, uh, you know, a screening test, which is what we do, it's looking for risk. It's not saying, yes, the baby does or no, the baby doesn't. That's what a diagnostic test does. And people don't understand, just like I think most people don't realize that a mammogram or a PSA is really a screening test. It's, it's not a diagnostic test. It looks for risk and it tells us if further testing needs to be done, but people don't, don't understand it. They either take it absolutely at face value or, or they go the opposite direction and they go, oh, it's a screening test, no big deal. I wish I would have understood that better. I, I, think, I think our approach to education would have been a little bit different back in the day. So we're, we're making adjustments now, but gosh, I, you know, I feel like we've lost some time there and I wished I would have known that. Mm. Yeah, honestly, I feel like I didn't know the difference between a screening and a diagnostic and, test. And again, before. most, I mean, honestly, most people don't. It's just not talked about, I don't think. So, you know, until it becomes real to you, right? Um, and again, that's human nature also. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Um, it was great to learn from you about the newborn screening program. I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts? I just want to thank you so much for reaching out to me, Anya and Ben, to to do this. Anytime I get to talk about newborn screening, that's a win, right? Because hopefully, you know, a few more people are going to learn something about newborn screening from this podcast, right? So thank you again. And, 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 you know, in your, in, by doing this, you've become advocates for newborn screening. So thank you. I appreciate that. And, I guess if anybody has further questions, my contact uh, information is carol, C-A-R-O-L dash Johnson at uiwa.edu. That's it for this week's episode. Big thanks to our guest, Carol Johnson, for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted, written, edited, and produced by Ben Sint and Anya. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, and anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach out to us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take on life.